Sunday and next is designated as part of the stewardship season. Stewardship is when we take a look at our resources. Our resources include money, of course. They also include our assets, our cash on hand, but also our assets. It also includes our time. It also includes our talent. And so in the stewardship season, we ask you to make a commitment to the Lord for 2014 pertinent to our operating budget. Here's a little interview that may be of interest to you. Today on Action Financial News, we bring you a rather strange report of a new twist on investing that seems to be sweeping the country. It's called tithing. It involves giving your money away for what appears to be no reason whatsoever. The people we interviewed who practiced this rather bizarre investment technique all seem to be rational, competent individuals. But let me be clear here. They're giving their money away. Not all of it, but enough to pique our interest. We had to find out why. The first question is rather obvious. Why do you do it? I think there are three reasons we do it. Um, the first would be because Scripture commands us to tithe, so it's a, a duty. Um, secondly, I feel like it's our opportunity to give back to the Lord what He's given to us. And thirdly, because we are giving money to this particular church, it's our way of investing in the life of this church and the ministries that it supports. So when you give your money away, are you guaranteed a front row pew? No. <laughs> <laughs> a plaque mentioned in the bulletin? You know, when you know that the church is doing great things with their ministries, and so part of it is knowing that that money is going to help, you know, ministries around the, the city and around the world. So there's definitely a sense of satisfaction in knowing that, you know, when you don't necessarily, you can't be doing uh, work like the pastors are doing full time. So some of that is knowing that, you know, some of that work's being done on your behalf with some of the money that you give. So that's another sense of satisfaction I get from, yeah. you know, or we get from giving. Yeah. Are they blackmailing you? Are they holding a child ransom until you pay a certain amount? No. <laughs> no. How much money do you need to give away until you're guaranteed a spot in heaven? <laughs> well, I don't think it, it's guaranteeing you a spot. But 10% um, is the general, you know, scriptural guideline in terms of tithing. You can, of course, give more if you like. Um, and it's not like the church is checking up on you and looking at your checkbook <laughs> and seeing how much no. you're giving. Event happened with the baby. We have a nine, nine and a half month old baby and um, she was eating her Cheerios one at a time this morning. And in the middle of it, she stopped and picked a Cheerio up and held it up to me. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. And I leaned over and then she took it and ate it herself. But in the, <laughs> for a moment, I thought she was generously, you know, giving me a Cheerio. And it made me think about um, tithing because it's, it's, to me, it's very similar to that. Like, God gives us everything we have, and we think all those Cheerios, we have to hold on to them really tightly and everything, otherwise we're going to lose. Like, the baby doesn't know where her next meal is coming from. But she, like, there's something about feeling so, uh, like, proud of my child for offering me a Cheerio. And I thought, wow, I wonder if that's how God feels when we give back what he's already given to us anyway. And this ends part one of our two-part investigative report on tithing. We'll be back next week with more hard-hitting questions to the faithful as we attempt to get to the bottom of this totally confusing practice on giving your money away. The sermon lesson this morning is taken from 2 Kings chapter 7. Now let me warn you, this is a long lesson. So you're just going to have to uh, 
get it up and read through with me. And I really believe you can do this. Can you do this? All right. Here's the text. 2 Kings chapter 7. Hear the word of God together, please. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a measure of choice meal shall be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, Even if the Lord were to make windows in the sky, could such a thing happen? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat from it. Now there were four leprous men outside the city gate who said to one another, Why should we sit here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. But if we sit here, we shall also die. Therefore, let us desert to the Arabian camp. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the Aramean camp. But when they came to the edge of the Aramean camp, there was no one there at all. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, The king of Israel has hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to fight against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp just as it was, and fled for their lives. When these leprous men had come to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent, ate and drank, carried off silver, gold, and clothing, and went and hid them. Then they came back, entered another tent, carried off things from it, and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, What we are doing is wrong. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, we will be found guilty. Therefore let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We went to the Aramean camp, but there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied, the donkeys tied, and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and proclaimed it to the king's household. The king got up in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Arameans have prepared against us. They know that we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. One of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, since those left here will suffer the fate of the whole multitude of Israel that have perished already. Let us send and find out. So they took two mounted men, and the king sent them after the Aramean army, saying, Go and find out. So they went after them as far as the Jordan. The whole way was littered with garments and equipment that the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned 
and told the king. Friends, God always blesses the reading and the hearing of the Word. The greatest national golf tournament is certainly that of the Masters at Augusta. The Masters at Augusta really does determine who is one of the most skilled players in the world. The Masters at Augusta has a section called the Amen Corner. It's holes 11, 12, and 13. And as a Presbyterian, I'm curious, why would they call it the Amen Corner? What's with that? Holes 11, 12, and 13. So I checked it out, and I found out that they call it the Amen Corner because there used to be an old jazz song that was called Shoutin' in the Amen Corner. Jack Nicklaus says there's been a lot of shouting in the Amen Corner over the years at the Masters. He says people get all excited. He said players know that if they have a hiccup on 11, 12, or 13 at the Masters, it could cost them the tournament. The, the turn at the Amen Corner is often a headache for the very best of players. Nicholas calls it scary. 11, 12, and 13, he says, are scary. And he said there have been a lot of prayers offered to God in that Amen Corner. <laughs> he says, yes, there's also been some shouting in that Amen Corner. The story we just read focuses on the children of Israel. The children of Israel were in the city of Samaria. The city of Samaria was totally surrounded. The Aramean, not the Armenians, the Arameans had surrounded the city of Samaria and they had choked off all of the supplies. They were starving that city into submission. And these people literally were starving to death. And if you get a kick out of Stephen King's writing, go read 2 Kings chapter 6, the chapter before, because you will see some scary stuff. Some very repulsive food was consumed by those people just to stay alive. There was even cannibalism. So these people are desperate in Samaria. The Arameans have been very successful at choking off their supplies. They are indeed starving them into submission. And along comes Elisha, the prophet of God, and he keeps telling the king of Samaria and everybody who will listen, hold out, hold out. There's going to be divine intervention. Don't get excited. It's going to be okay. But the people are starving to death. And the king of Samaria says, Elisha, I'm sick of you. I'm going to make a deal with the Arameans. I'm going to get out of here. We, we are desperate. People are starving. You've got to understand they're dying. And we can't wait for divine intervention anymore. And so what does old Elisha do? He says, this time, tomorrow, at this gate, wheat will sell for $1.50 a bushel, barley's going to sell for 75 cents a bushel, and you are going to be well fed. Now you have to understand that the king was leaning on one of his captains. And as he leaned on the captain, the old captain couldn't take it anymore, and he turns to the prophet of God, Elisha, and he says, you've got to be kidding. Are you telling me that tomorrow at this time, somehow the windows of heaven are going to open up, food's going to fall out, and we'll all be saved, starvation will be no more? And Elisha turns on the captain and he says, you are going to see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. Wow. What happens next? All I know is that when I read the scriptures, I've learned that I need to doubt my doubts. Faith is not belief without proof. It is trust 
without reservation. So I need to doubt my doubts. That evening, four lepers that had been forced out of the city of Samaria because their disease was viewed as contagious, they were living outside the city wall, actually between the Aramean camp and the city of Samaria. These lepers were desperate people as well. They didn't have any more food than anybody else. They knew the future was very, very grim for them. And so they decided that they were going to desert and go to the Armenian, Arame, Aramean camp, not the Armenians, the Aramean camp. Going to go to the Aramean camp and they were going to throw themselves on the mercy of that crowd. And here's what it says. You read it a moment ago in verse 3. Why should we sit here until we die? Then they said, if we say, let us enter the city, the famine's in the city, we shall die there. But if we die here, well, we're all going to die. Therefore, let us desert to the Aramean camp. And if they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. They were willing to take the risk. They had nothing to lose. So what did they do? After sunset, they slipped down the hill into the Aramean camp. And the very first tent they went into, they discovered there was nobody there, but the food was still warm. And then they began to look around. They realized other tents were empty. And there was warm food everywhere. And there was absolutely nobody around. The prophet of God, Elisha, says, I told you so. There's going to be some shouting in the Amen corner. And the Lord made the sound of a mighty army somehow appear in the ears of the enemy camp. And they thought, sure, that the Israelites had made a deal with the Egyptians and with the Hittites to come attack these folks. And so they fled. They left the tents. They left the donkeys tied. They left the horses tied. They left their gold and their silver and their food and their clothing. They left the whole thing and took off running. They simply abandoned camp. And so these four lepers suddenly realized that panic swept that camp and they are shouting in the amen corner. They are in ecstasy because they are able to voraciously satisfy their hunger and their thirst. And they plundered, yes, and they looted, yes. They did it, they hit it, and did it again, over and over. They were having one wonderful party more than they could possibly imagine, let alone consume. But then came a moment of truth. And this is what it says in verse 9. They said to one another, What we are doing is wrong. What? What we are doing is wrong. This is a day of good news. And if we are silent and wait until the morning light, we will be found guilty. Therefore let us go and tell the king's household. Now remember, this is the city that threw them out. This is the city that had rejected them because of their disease. This is the city that was starving to death. And these four lepers decide they're going to go back and tell the city that salvation is now right outside their gates. And surely you can picture this. Here they are, these four lepers, bloated, probably a little loaded, stumbling around in the dark, and they've gone back to the gatekeepers of Samaria to try to persuade them 
that something phenomenal had happened and that it was okay for people to enter the Aramean camp. Well, the gatekeepers had their doubts, I'm sure. But as the story was told, it spread like wildfire through the city of Samaria. And the folks were desperate, desperate for themselves, desperate for their children. And they rushed out of the gate and in the process trampled the captain, the captain on whose arm the king leaned, the captain who got that message from the prophet of God, Elisha, that said, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. Elisha went public with his faith. The four lepers went public with their faith. In essence, Elisha gave God's IPO. What's an IPO? What's an IPO? Initial public offering. And God's initial public offering was really one of grace to them. We have IPOs every week. We had an IPO this past week for container stores. Did you know that? And why did they do it? Well, they issue more stock and they want people to spread the relationship, buy more stock and generate capital for some new venture. And so container stores doubled their stock this past week. As a church, we face global Goliaths everywhere we look. HIV, illiteracy, impure water, impure sanitation systems. We see poverty and we see hatred. We see fear. Seven billion people on this planet. Do you know that the greatest network of compassion in this world is that of the Christian church? It makes the United Nations look pale. How do I know that? I can demonstrate it simply out of this congregation. We have 17 mission partners in Los Angeles alone where we reach to the needy in this great aching city. And we send people, since I've been here, people to the Congo, people to China, people to Haiti, people to Brazil. We send people all over the world and we're all part of that network of compassion that the body of Christ has and it genuinely makes a difference. You see, we have gifts. And if we refuse to share them, we are the poorer for it. Hoarding, hoarding causes moral deterioration. I don't care whether you're talking about hoarding education, science, medicine, money. Hoarding causes moral deterioration. And we dare not live apathetically with our riches. Recently we had the Barna study done here. David Kinneman that headed up the study said this is one of the wealthiest, best educated congregations he has ever seen in the United States. We dare not live apathetically with our riches. Those four lepers went public with their faith. Were they the best messengers? No. Were they the most competent? No, no, no. God just chose to use them. And God chooses to use the likes of us to make a difference in this world, a redemptive difference in this world. What we are doing is wrong, they said. This is a day of good news. And we dare not go silent. The question for you and for me is how public are we willing to go with our faith in Jesus Christ? How public are we willing to go? 
And next Sunday, you will have the opportunity to bring your pledge cards up to the operating budget for 2014 and place them here and dedicate them to God. That's not a trivial act. It really is an opportunity for real dedication of your resources to God. And let me tell you something. This pledge card is not a referendum. It's not a referendum on this denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA. It's not a referendum on this congregation. It's not a referendum on your elders. It's not a referendum on your staff or even on this old man. This is a thank you note to God. Nothing more, nothing less. It's a thank you note to God. It's a genuine effort on your part and mine to simply say thank you, Lord, to offer our gratitude for all that has been entrusted to us. We spent this last year $100 billion on bottled water. $100 billion on bottled water. One billion people on this planet don't know anything about clean water. One billion. And do you know what they say? By 2025, the scientists say that three billion people on this planet will know nothing of clean water. Consumer Reports says the average woman in America has 19 pairs of shoes. And I know what you're doing. You're sitting there imagining somebody's closet. You're going, 19? Then ain't nothing. (laughs) My wife explained to me that she needed every one of those and that I was the one who was off track. Now, I'm talking about Consumer Reports says the average woman in America has 19 pairs of shoes without counting flip-flops or sneakers. How about that? I have a young friend in Houston, Michelle. She's uh, a fashion goddess. And so I said to Michelle, how many pairs of shoes do you have, Michelle? She said, I have well over a hundred. I said, what? She said, oh, I have well over a hundred pairs of shoes. And she said, they're all in their original boxes. And I said, you must have storage that I know nothing about. But they're all in the original boxes. And she says, I have them labeled so that these shoes complement certain outfits. I said, the world is going to hell. (laughs) And at the previous service, Bob said, yes, and feet first. (laughs) There are 2,350 references in the Bible to money. 2,350. Two-thirds, two-thirds of the parables that Jesus used to teach us have to do with money. There are 39 references to tithing in the Bible. 39 references to tithing. That's 10% of your resources. And don't ask me if it has to do with the net or the gross. I really don't care. That's between you and the Lord, not me. But 39 references, I think the Lord knew what would get our attention. The Lord knew the magnitude of money and just how magnetic it is for all of us. You see, for me, stewardship is not fundraising. It is everything I do after I say I believe in Jesus Christ. It's everything I do after I say I believe in Jesus Christ. And I'm not interested in building a bigger budget here at Bel Air. I'm not interested in building a bigger resume for myself. 
But I am interested in building bigger hearts. And we have heads to make money and we have hearts to give it. And I don't get any pleasure out of begging you for money. But I do have an obligation. I do have an obligation. My obligation is to give you a fresh opportunity for spiritual growth. And one of the ways spiritual growth happens is how you handle your personal resources. What is your bottom line? My bottom line is because of the cross of Calvary, because of Jesus Christ extending forgiveness to me, the least I can do is offer my gratitude through the use of of my resources. Charitable giving is not an economic decision for me. It's a spiritual decision. Linda and I give, and we give systematically, every week, every month. Do we give to this church? Yes. Do we give to other organizations all over the world? Yes, we do. But we do systematically. Systematically, we give. Not once a year, but over and over, faithfully, week after week. In addition to that, we believe in percentage giving. We believe in tithing, giving 10%. But the Bible talks about tithes and offerings. Offerings is the over and above part after the 10% where you do something special. So we believe in systematic giving, percentage giving, and we believe in adding a dimension of excitement to our pledges. In other words, doing something that we're not sure we can even possibly do. Just kind of taking a risk, a, a leap of faith. And we will be married 50 years next September. Do you know what a thrill it's been for her all 50 years? <laughs> but I can tell you, every one of those 50 years, that dimension of excitement, somehow, somehow, we've been able to do it. God has entrusted amazing resources to it. So I don't even, you know, I'm here, I'm a temp. You got it? I'm a temp. So why would I give to this church? I give to this church because I think this congregation honors Jesus Christ. I think the leaders in this church and the staff have integrity. I give to this church because this church looks beyond itself to care for people around the world. Be part of that compassionate network that makes a difference in this world. We have 7,000 unique visitors online every month. Did you hear that? 7,000 visitors online, unique visitors. No duplication. Unique visitors every month, 7,000. So 7,000 times 12 months is what? These are tough questions. What? 7 times 12 is 84. 84,000 contacts in a year. We have an amazing ministry. We have an amazing outreach. And I feel privileged to be part of that. That's why I want to play. I will tell you this, that I dearly believe that we cannot afford to live apathetically with our riches. I want to tell you one story. One story that ends all of this. And Anthony came to my staff when I was at First Presbyterian in Houston. Anthony was, uh, came out of the world of football. He had been on the coaching staff at the University of Texas. He'd coached at the Rice University, and he had been on the coaching staff at the Minnesota Vikings. So this guy knew his football. 
And Anthony came and got interested in one of the inner city high schools in Houston called Madison High School. And Madison High School always produced great football teams. So he knew the coach, and he went to the coach, and he said, Coach, when you have your pregame meal on Friday nights before your games, I'd love to come and give an inspirational message to your players. How about giving me that opportunity? The coach said, I'd be happy to do that, but we don't have a pregame meal. He said, what do you mean you don't have a pregame meal? All the high schools in Texas have a pregame meal. You have 10 games through the fall. Every game there's a pregame meal. And the coach said, no, we don't have a pregame meal. He said, well, doesn't your boosters club provide a meal? No, he said, we don't have a boosters club. He said, well, what about the parents club? Doesn't the parents club provide a meal for you before every game? He said, no. Most of our kids come from single parents. Most of them are on food stamps. They don't have much to spare. And so Anthony said, well, how about if I provided the evening meal for these players? And the coach said, well, you're talking, you know, you're going to have to feed 100 people with staff and coaches and players, about 100 people. And so Anthony went to Damaris Barbecue in Houston, and he said, for 10 successive Friday nights, I want a barbecue sandwich, a bag of chips, a cookie, and a Coke. Three dollars a head. Damaris Barbecue thought he was nuts. But they made the deal. So, each game cost $300 for the pregame meal. Got it? 300 times 10 equals? You're doing better on your math. $3,000. And I want you to know, Anthony came to me, he said, Dave, I've got to have 3000 bucks to get the pregame meal for these kids. And I said, so what's the point? He said, because during the pregame meal, I'm going to be given the opportunity to talk to them about Jesus Christ. And he said, I won't have to apologize for anything because I provided the meal. That was the easiest 3000 bucks he ever got in his life. You see, the real point is, we dare not live apathetically with our riches. Please pray about your part for next Sunday. What would God have you do, and what would bless your life? Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we don't understand why you have entrusted us with so much. We are the best fed, the best dressed, the best educated, the best entertained in the whole world. We thank you for that trust. Now, oh God, help us to use that trust well. Allow us to be part of the network of compassion that surrounds this globe so that the name of Jesus Christ will be praised. Amen.